0: a lot of people expect just throw me a pill man and make this better and it's like that's not how this works like with trauma especially there's so much work that you as the patient have to go through in order to unravel that complicated trauma and rebuild that those healthy neural pathways and that medication isn't going to get to you need to do that work in therapy so the fact that you're working with a therapist who's suggesting these alternative pathways for you is great
1: (laughs) You're listening to Make Some Noise podcast, episode number 430, with guest Dr. Sasha Hamdani. Welcome to Make Some Noise podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. You know what? If you are feeling like it, you can send me a DM or shoot us an email and let us know how you're liking this new theme framework that I'm doing here on the podcast. We're still on the first theme. I know you don't have that much experience. Neither do I. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I hope that you're liking um, the uh, experts that we're having on and just what we're talking about. We are going to switch over into relationships in about a month. I have a lot of experts on around the topic of therapy and different modalities. And today's expert is no different. But I first wanted to tell you a little bit more about the Daring Way retreat that I have coming up. I have two of them actually. As to answer a question like, "What do we actually do?" Like, "What are you going to walk away with?" And I want to first read to you the explanation that either Brene wrote, Brene Brown wrote, or somebody in the senior faculty who's like in marketing. Okay. So here's what, here's how they explain. When I say they, I mean Brene Brown's team, the senior faculty at, um, I don't know what the name of her company is, whatever it is, brenebrown.com. Okay. Here it is. And I'm going to read it in my super professional voice. Excuse me. All right. During the process, facilitators explore topics such as vulnerability, courage, shame, and worthiness. Participants are invited to examine the thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that are holding them back and identify the new choices and practices that will move them toward more authentic and wholehearted living. The primary focus is on developing shame resilience skills and developing daily practices that transform the way we live, love, parent, and lead. Scene. Okay. That is all great. That is all great. But how I describe it is yes to all of that. And the daring way helps you not feel like shit. So when they say participants are invited to examine the thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that are holding them back, that's the stuff that all of that is the stuff that I wrote about and how to stop feeling like shit. That's how that book, that's where that book was born. The people-pleasing, the perfectionism, the you know, feeling like you have to identify as someone who's strong, the self-sabotage, the isolating and hiding out, the numbing out, raises hand. Those are the kind of behaviors, emotions, thoughts that a lot of us sort of default into. And what the daring way helps you do is to, as they say, move, move them toward more authentic and wholehearted living. So what we do in order for you to, first of all, know what that is, and then help you practice actually doing it in your real life is we identify your values. Like, what kind of identity do you want to have? If we're t- if we're kind of looking towards, you know, James Clear's, um, who wrote Atomic Habits, his language around, you know, identity based habits. Like, what kind of person do you want to be? It's the same thing as values. What's important about the way you live your life? So we identify that, and then from there, we also talk about these obstacles that get in your way when shit happens in real life, (laughs) because it's going to, like the thought patterns that we immediately default to, or, you know, do you get passive aggressive? Do you get quiet? Do you get sarcastic? Do you lash out? Depends on the person, depends on the situation. So this is, we go through all of that. And then it's also really about normalizing terrible behavior. Maybe that's not a great way of putting it, but, you know, we all – do things and think ways that we're not proud of. And and so this program also normalizes all of that. And it's not an excuse to keep doing it. But if you come from a place of compassion for yourself, and many times compassion for others, it helps you kind of exhale and go, okay, I'm not broken. I'm not a total dick. Um, I am just a human who's behaving because Sometimes of trauma responses, sometimes because of shame, sometimes it's whatever it is that we don't like to talk about. And then we find new ways of behaving. And also, this whole modality and retreat is about holding space for your stories If you want to, if you want to share them around some things that have hurt you and that have caused you to behave this way, because when we put it all out there in the open in a space that is a container to be able to carry that, you know, as as the the facilitator is me, yours truly, who is (laughs) trained and have has a lot of experience in doing just that. Again, it just allows you to kind of exhale and be seen and heard by other like-minded women and be seen and heard by me and normalize it and allows you to keep taking steps forward and learning new skills. That's what this is. It's, it's learning new skills to be able to cope with life because sometimes life is hard and it hurts and we don't know what to do with things that are handed to us that are really incredibly hard to carry and deal with. So that is one way of explaining what The Daring Way is. If you go to the retreat pages, there, there's um, several video testimonials of women who've attended my retreats before talking about what they learned, what their favorite part was. It's in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, there is a recovery-based one. That one's in September. And that's at andreaowen.com slash recovery dash retreat. And then the other one that's a non-recovery retreat. um, You can be in recovery and go to that one too, by the way. (laughs) That one's at andreaowen.com slash retreat. Those two links are in the show notes. And they're also going to be in my social media bio as well as um, on the website. You can find it. (laughs) Okay, today's guest. I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Sasha Hamdani. I found her on TikTok, as one does. And for those of you, it's not like Craigslist. This is not like a Craigslist doctor. TikTok is a social media channel. (laughs) where (laughs) Mental health is huge on TikTok by the way. So I came across Dr. Sasha, and she talks a lot about ADHD, which we will get into, Um, but this whole episode is not about that. I asked her about TMS because my psychiatrist recommended that I have it. I have not done it though. And we talk about um, genetic screening, which is something that I've always been interested in and kind of like I had some I had some misconceptions if you will about what someone can get out of genetic screening for for psychiatric conditions and and mental health and some other topics around mental health. I really think you're going to get a lot out of it. I absolutely loved this conversation. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Sasha Hamdani is a board certified psychiatrist and ADHD specialist. In addition to her private practice, she has a robust social media following across multiple platforms where she provides accessible and accurate information about ADHD. So without further ado, here is Dr. Sasha. Thank you for taking time out of your day with two toddlers to come and talk to us. I know. (laughs) I know how that could be. You know what I'm the most interested in as we dive into this, you know, mental health slash self-care conversation. How did you get into this particular topic? Like, did you go to medical school and were like, I'm going to help people with ADHD or did it just happen on accident?
0: So I have ADHD. Like if that's not totally blatantly obvious, um, I was diagnosed in fourth grade. So pretty early diagnosis, but my parents were really worried about the stigma. Um, and so didn't tell me I was diagnosed. So I went to a doctor's Started medication and actually school became really enjoyable and interesting for me. And I did well throughout school. Um, I did so well that I got into this, um, this combined undergrad and med school. So I got into med school out of high school, started there, but that was the first time I was ever away from home and just sucked. I was terrible. Like my whole world collapsed. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, my parents were like, are you taking your vitamin? And I'm like, No. It was my vitamin. Even though you <laughs> were in college. So you didn't know still when you were in college. I had no idea. Okay. I had no idea. Um, so then they were like, okay, well, heads up, it's actually not a vitamin. It is medication. You have ADHD. So that was just like a lot to process all at once. And so then, you know, going through medical school, like I really like I just kind of went the opposite way and I like fought the diagnosis. I'm like, there's no way I have this. Absolutely not. Like this is for hyper little boys, like, no, Mm -hmm. this isn't me. And then as I went through and like struggled with finding the right medication, finding the right modifications, by the time I limped through um, medical school, like by the end of it, I was like, okay, like I have accumulated enough experience that I think this is probably (laughs) the field I need to go into. And then I went into psychiatry. And that's kind of how that started. So it was fairly early. On. I have so many
1: questions. First of all, so you didn't go and like get your bachelor's degree in like biology
0: or like, like a lot of people in chemistry or in medical school do. I, it was all at the same time, which was like great because it was fast, but also terrifying because like, if you failed out, like in the first, like, f- like if you made it through, it was a six year program. If you made it through five years, you wouldn't have any degree. So it's like, "Okay, what am I
1: doing?" <laughs> it was horrible. Oh my, stakes are high. Stakes <laughs> are high. And I would I would think that that's a lot of pressure too with your peers.
0: It, it was. It, it 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 was. It it was a um it's hard. And you know, I I don't um I don't know if ADHD is something that you struggle with or what your personal mm-hmm. story is with that or Um, if that's something that's like, if, you know, other people who have been impacted by that, but like someone who's experiencing ADHD, like, and was used to being like the smart kid in high school, that's like, that is what I built my identity around. I got like plopped into this situation. I'm like, okay, (laughs) I guess I'm dumb now.
1: I've never met anybody who wasn't told about their, about their pretty significant, like mental health challenge. Uh, Mm -hmm. No, I wasn't diagnosed until earlier this year. And and, and it's just now that I'm starting to put the pieces together and look back on Mm -hmm. especially my school life. So both of my children were diagnosed. My son was diagnosed when he was five. That was eight, Mm -hmm. nine years ago. And then, which didn't surprise me, he's inattentive. And then my daughter started showing some symptoms and we actually thought that she might have a learning disability because I did not suspect ADHD because her symptoms were different than my son's. So of course, like I only had that like frame of reference. So I was like, it must look like him and it doesn't. So it must be something else. So we went through the whole process with a psychologist who specializes in learning disabilities and attention, um, difficulties. So, and it came back like clear as day, like textbook ADHD inattentive. And when I would, my husband and I were sitting in her office and she's describing how it shows up in girls. And I almost kind of stopped listening a because the obvious and B because (laughs) because I saw my own life. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop, 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 stop for a second. You mean to tell me this is what it looks like. And then all of a sudden I'm I'm remembering how much I struggled probably starting in middle school. I always had to have tutors. I always felt stupid. Then in college, I got put on a Fexer because I had severe anxiety disorder and was like having full-blown panic attacks and somehow graduated with honors from college. And then just recently, the psychologist told me that a lot of times they prescribe Effexor because mm. for some, it can help with ADHD symptoms. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> is, that, is that what happened? And then I got off it when I got pregnant in 2007, I got off the Effexor and yeah. then I you know, t- have tumbled back. And um, anyway, all that to say, I think my life would have been different had I been put yeah. on medication.
0: Yeah. And I hear that a lot. I, I do hear that a lot, you know, with ADHD, especially in women that get diagnosed kind of later. Cause I mean, that's so common, right? At, like as a population, we are trained to think about ADHD as this diagnosis is like a hyper little dude. Like that. Mm-hmm. that's what we're thinking about. And so generationally, there's like this huge amount of women who got skipped because they weren't disruptive in class. They were inattentive and they, you know, it didn't impact anybody but themselves. Right. And then, you know, a lot of times they ended up doing pretty well in school.
1: Mm-hmm. We become resourceful. I I have found I, we, I learned my own systems.
0: I was super resourceful. I could figure it out. I could find a way. A lot of people with ADHD, very intelligent and yeah, resourceful. So you, you find these workarounds in the system. And plus, if you're blessed with a little bit of anxiety, I mean, that fear of letting people down, that kind of propels you going forward. So it's not that symptoms are, have abated or have gone away. You've just gotten better at hiding them. Right.
1: Exactly. Can someone have symptoms of ADHD? but not actually have it. Like what is it? Yeah. I make up that it's for doctors and psychiatrists, psychologists. It's tricky to kind of figure out like, what's what is that fair? I, I know I'm not explaining it very well, but I came back with like a plethora of diagnoses and she told me that it's tricky to, to like, where does your, um, impulse control disorder start? And, ADHD
0: began. It's hard. So, so it is tricky. But partially because, like, when people think about ADHD, they're very hyper fixated on just the focus component of it. And focus is such a multifaceted thing in that you can have focus difficulties from anxiety. You can have focus issues from depression. You can have focus issues from thyroid illness. You can have focus issues from tons of stress. Stress causes focus issues. Like there's so many things. Hormonal stuff causes focus I mean, lack issues. Lack of
1: sleep. Yeah,
0: totally. There's so, so many things. So really what you're looking at for ADHD is you're looking at this constellation of symptoms that tends to be chronic over time. So it's it's not that, you know, like, okay, the stress resolved and now my focus issues so are not really a problem. It's not, I mean, it definitely can worsen in um, circumstantial situations, but this is something that's present at baseline. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which seems kind of like, I I wonder if sometimes it feels like which came first, the chicken or the egg, especially like for somebody who's in college and it's finals week and, and it just, and it flares up. Okay. Interesting. I want to ask you selfishly and for my audience listening, (laughs) talk to us about TMS, which is yeah. transmagnetic stimulation. Um, I've also, is it, is it also transcranial magnetic stimulation? Is that another transcranial
0: magnetic stimulation? Yeah. Okay. TMS. So,
1: so my doctor wants me to try that because awesome. I seem resistant to, I have complex PTSD from a former relationship to actually back-to-back relationships that it happened over time. And it was, it was awful. It's a long story. Yeah. for another time. But uh it seems to be like it like keeps kicking up and keeps keeps kicking up and I've had tons of trauma therapy and like somatic work and it what happens my experience is that like I seem to get better so it's a lot of three steps forward and two steps back which yeah. is fine but and the progress has felt agonizingly slow. Yeah. And the medication now doesn't really seem to and I also have impulse control disorder um like chronic cuticle picking, like that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so n- no medication has helped that at all. No supplements, absolutely nothing. So she wants me to try this and I'm skeptical. And so can you talk to us? Like, what is it? Yeah. Um, who is it for? And then also what are the, um, I think I read somewhere that the the results really vary mm-hmm. and that's what makes me like, oh, well, shit, I don't want to put all this effort in. And my insurance yeah. is crap and it's going to like cost a shit ton of money. So like, right. Oh so that's, that's my experience so far with it. I haven't signed up yet. So talk to us about it.
0: TMS is really for treatment resistant depression. I mean, that was what the primary diagnosis mm-hmm. was for. Now we're trying to branch into different diagnoses and depending on the machine, some have different qualifications. Some do, are, uh, some do generalized anxiety. Some do OCD, depending on where it's, where you treat on on the brain and where and how deep that penetration is going into. But basically the theory behind that is instead of taking a medication by mouth and hoping and praying and ends up in the right area, mm-hmm. like it passes through your enteric system, goes through your gut, gets into your bloodstream, passes through your blood brain barrier and gets exactly where it needs to go to kick off those neurotransmitters. We're bypassing all that. So yeah. if we go straight to kind of the source and then hyper stimulate that area with magnetic impulses to try and get those neurotransmitters to talk to each other. So basically, Mm -hmm. and I mean, it it sounds really odd, but basically you're like for us in our office. Well, I I know you're you're explaining it to like the lay person. (laughs) So thank you for that. I mean, But like, I think this is how I understood it as well. When someone like explained it to me, I'm like, nope, don't understand that. Don't Mm -hmm. understand that. So this is how it was explained to me. So basically what's happening is like in our office, you're you're sitting in it kind of looks like a dentist chair and you have this, um, we map out the area of the brain, we figure out where um, to get this motor threshold to figure out where we're targeting. Then we hyper stimulate that area with this paddle. So you're basically like sitting and watching Netflix or whatever, and you have this treatment thing going on. Have you ever, have you ever done an MRI or anything like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know that clicking sound that's really annoying? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's that. So really okay. it's, it's not painful. It's not anything, It's but it's annoying. It's for yeah. sure annoying. So you're getting this repetitive kind of tapping in, in bursts. So what it's doing is quite painful. Literally, it's agitating those neurotransmitters into talking, and so over time, what you're expecting is that you should have, you should build and cement good neural pathways because you've kind of forged a pathway over and over and over and over again. It works well for people that, um, for whatever reason, they're not responding to medication. It works well for people that have problems with their gut, so taking medication by mouth is just not going to work. It works well for people that have difficulty with. Bridging something that psychiatrically medication hasn't figured out yet, like super high anxiety, but really low energy, because if you try to boost up their energy, okay, now you're like this anxious psychopath, or it's like, oh, my God, my anxiety is so bad. So if you squash your anxiety, now you're a zombie. So it's like, there's no like, so trying to find that happy medium. So uh, TMS is a good option for that. But there are a lot of people that can't do TMS, like people who have metal in their chest or their head mm-hmm. or their neck or whatever indications you can't go through an MRI apply for this because it's magnetic. People who you have to tread very carefully with, you know, certain, depending on the machine you use and things like that, certain psychiatric diagnosis, we're like, mm, no, okay. don't want to treat that. So it's highly dependent on the person. I mean, and for each individual person you're trying to assess, is this a good treatment modality? Now, in terms of the variability, I can only kind of tell you anecdotally what I've seen. Yeah. I really like TMS, but that's partially because I'm lazy. (laughs) I'm lazy (laughs) because I don't like, I don't really, to be totally honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of medication. And I know that's weird as a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. because I'm supposed Mm -hmm. to be throwing pills at you. But like, I don't like it. I mean, I think uh, the generation of psychiatrists that graduated 10 years ago, we've had the benefit of brain scans. We've had the benefit of looking at longitudinal data about risk stratification with medications and things like that. So we have this healthy fear of medications. We don't want to keep prescribing stuff. We don't want to do super high doses because we know what it does to the brain. And we know like, yes, if there's a time and a place, cool. But I think our rallying mantra is that we want you on the least amount of medication possible for the least amount of time, right? That makes sense. And no,
1: I'm curious about the results because like, cause what my psychologist told me, she said that she's only had one patient that did not respond. And she said he was inconsistent about going there. Cause it's like five days a week, at least the place mm-hmm. that's here in Greensboro, it's five days a week for
0: six weeks. Yeah. Same with us. So yeah, so it's, it's 30 sessions. And then sometimes you have like tapers after that. Anecdotally, what I will tell you is that I've had pretty good luck with it. If you ask me my pre-COVID numbers or my post-COVID numbers, my pre-COVID numbers were way better. (laughs) Um, And like after COVID, because like pre-COVID, I really didn't have a lot of like repeat uh, TMS because people did well and it was fine. And then I think the pandemic just like kind of turned people on their heads and, you know, it it was really difficult. And there was a lot of collective trauma that we were all Mm -hmm. dealing with even with that i think a lot of people what i would say is with tms i've never had someone who's done worse ever ever okay. like if you're treating the right the right thing you really should never have that 40% of people we treat and they do awesome like absolutely awesome and then our goal of tms is that you know we try to wean you kind of lower on your medications or off and we're actually able or what I've seen with my patient population that I've been able to wean them off medication. And then I literally don't see them again, which is kind of a bummer, but great. Cause I see them at the grocery store and we're cool. About 40% of people, we do the TMS. They feel great. We try to wean them off medication and they're like, oh, I don't feel as great. But what the TMS did is we it gave them the opportunity for the medication to work more effectively. And almost always we can get them on a lower dose. Mm. um those are also people that have pretty strong seasonal variations so sometimes we can get them off medication but then like if they get weird in the winter like we we have we address it with medication if that's the case or sometimes people do like maintenance bursts of TMS it depends yeah Then about 20 percent of them we do the TMS they do feel better absolutely none feel worse but we still are kind of experimenting with medication or they don't have a complete kind of resolution for those people, you know, sometimes there's stuff like they're currently in a, a situation where there's ongoing trauma or there's you know, there it's, oh, it's mm-hmm. almost always kind of like this multifaceted thing, but you know, that's, and that's just anecdotally from what I've seen from my own TMS kind of population, not a curated and a meta-analysis of the entire TMS population. But that's what I've seen, if if that's what you're asking.
1: That's so fascinating. And I hope that in the years to come it'll get even more, you know, specific on on what they can treat and it'll just keep getting better, which it probably will. That's so interesting. I heard somewhere, and I cannot remember where I heard this, that most medications for anxiety, depression, Things like that. It's sort of like if you need to change your oil. I don't know if this is a terrible analogy. Yeah. Like you if you lift up the hood to your car and just sort of like spray oil all over the entire interior of your car and hope that some gets into the right spot. It probably will, but you don't know how
0: much. Huh. <laughs> I was like, so wow, it's kind of like a shot in the dark, I guess. <laughs> Oh my God. I hope not. I mean, who is giving you that analogy? No. I, I mean, I, I heard it. I think one
1: of my, one of my friends told me that, that lives in LA, that they were trying to find the right medication for her son. And it was, they were going through different medications, trying to find the one that was correct and had also done that, that blood test or whatever, where you can get the red, green, and yellow light of which yeah. ones are better. And I don't know. I hope in a hundred years they'll look back on like this time and look at mental health and go, oh my God, remember when we were doing that? (laughs) It'll improve so much.
0: Oh yeah. I'm hoping. And I think we're moving more towards personalized medicine just in the first place because I mean the old the old guard of like throwing stuff at the wall, that is obviously not the best way to go about things. Yeah. Right. So I mean, now we, like electro shock
1: therapy and like lobotomy is like, Jesus Christ, that wasn't all that long ago. That was just a handful of decades ago.
0: We have, we have electro shock therapy now. Still? Yeah. ECT. Yeah. What is, yeah. so who would be a good candidate for that? The same people that would be a good candidate for TMS. I don't really? personally do ECT because I don't like it. Like, and for no, like I had a bad experience with it that like the first time I did it in residency, someone like because you're inducing a seizure, like you're quite yeah. literally inducing electrical current to kind of hyperstimulate those neurotransmitters like what you're doing in TMS. But this is you're inducing like the person is under anesthesia and the body does weird stuff. If you're like under anesthesia and you're inducing a seizure. Anyway, he pooped. I've never gotten over it. I, I cannot do it anymore. I. Yeah. No, I, I would want to wear a pull up or something like to that. I mean, Sorry. I was just like, I cannot believe I, that no, because of something I did, I made him do this. No way. Never again. And like I have never done it again. <laughs>
1: that's, a, that's a bad experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, the only thing I think the only, you know, point of reference that I have for that is my grandmother, my dad's mother. And this was probably back in the night, late 1930s. Yeah. They had like fostered this little girl and my grandmother, you know, like fell in love with this girl. They had her for a couple of years and the little girl ended up going back to her parents. And my grandmother was devastated and went into this deep, deep depression and they did electroshock therapy to try to get her out of it. And apparently from what I understand from my dad and my uncle, she was never the same after that. Oh, and granted no. that was a long, that was almost a hundred years ago. It was what, 80, 90 years ago. So I'm sure it's come a long way and they probably they probably um, vet people a little bit more carefully now, especially women.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, and so the thing is, the thing about ECT is that even though I don't do it, I do recognize that there is a, um, it sounds absolutely hideous and archaic, but there is a time and a place where potentially it could be useful. And there's actually like, there's a lot of data showing safety being even better than medications in certain mm-hmm. situations. So like, it's, it's crazy. I don't like it. I yeah. also really don't like it because I don't like the short-term memory loss and it is kind of freaks me out. So, I mean, those are, those are kind of my things. Okay.
1: Well, and I also watched nurse ratchet too, which was like, oh, that's my probably not disturbing. helpful.
0: It wasn't yeah. at all.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to just remember that's not real. I'm interrupting this conversation to bring you a few words from some of our sponsors. My husband Jason and I have a system now when we cook a green chef meal, which by the way, they're the number one meal kit for eating well. But when we cook together, I tape the green chef instructions on the microwave for that meal. We split up the recipe and cook that way because I love a good system. I love a good system and I love good, easy food. Green chefs, expert chefs curate every recipe so you can enjoy nutritious restaurant quality dishes at home without compromising on taste. I don't know about you. I'm not a great cook, but I can follow a recipe like a boss. I love that Green Chef puts together ingredients that I would never think to put together. And when you taste it, you're like, oh my God, This is the best combination of ingredients I've ever tasted. The flavors, oh my. Green Chef saves you time by taking care of the meal planning, the grocery shopping, most of the prep for you week after week, so you don't have to. Green Chef's options are for every lifestyle, including keto and paleo, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, or none of those. It's just balanced living, and that's the one that we pick. Go to greenchef.com slash noise130 and use code NOISE130 to get $130 off, plus free shipping. It's greenchef.com slash noise130, and use code NOISE130 to get $130 off, plus free shipping. Thank you so much for supporting our sponsors, because that in turn supports this show. I have made it my life's goal to feel like I'm wearing pajamas, but look presentable and not like I just woke up. That's why I love Beta Brand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants. These magical pants are soft and stretchy and just as comfy as yoga pants, but you'll look polished and put together. Beta Brand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants are designed with the fit and flexibility of yoga pants, but they look like polished dress pants. They're soft, comfy, perfectly stretchy, and stay wrinkle-free. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles. I have the Straight Leg Two-Pocket dress yoga pants in black and they go with literally everything. You can dress them up or down. Women love these dress pant yoga pants because they fit so well. Whether you're sitting at a desk for eight hours, bending and moving all day. I don't know. Maybe you're an acrobat or running all over town. There's no digging, pulling or squeezing. They move with you. So you will look good and feel great all day. And if you think that all sounds great, there's more because they have pockets. They are machine washable yoga denim. Yoga denim, that's right. Looks like denim, feels like heavenly comfort. And right now, get 30% off your Beta Brand order when you go to betabrand.com slash noise. That's B-E-T-A brand.com slash noise for 30% off your order. Make sure to use our special URL because it supports the show. Thank you very much. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants. Go to betabrand.com slash noise for 30% off. You all know how I feel about pleasure, right? And making sure you have more of it. If you're thinking about making a resolution for 2022, instead of depriving yourself, why not focus on providing for yourself? With Dipsy, you can focus on giving yourself pleasure, which is a habit you'll want to keep all So Dipsy Stories is an app that is full of sexy audio stories, and now they even have brand new written stories. No matter who you are or what turns you on, Dipsy helps bring the stories to life anytime, anywhere. Just close your eyes and let yourself get lost in a world where only good things happen, and pleasure is your only priority. How wonderful. Explore your fantasies in a safe, shame-free way. And they also have wellness sessions to help you wind down and explore, and sleep sessions to help you drift off. I absolutely love this app. I use it often. And for listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash kickass. That's 30 days of full access for free, $0, when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash kickass. That's dipsystories.com slash kickass. Okay, so what kind of questions should someone ask a medical professional before treatment, such as TMS or medication, or even going through genetic screening? Because we haven't
0: even talked about that yet. Yeah. Um. So the thing about meeting with a psychiatrist is it's, it's a really collaborative process. Like it's, it's weird. It's not like seeing, well, at least it should that. be a collaborative it process. It totally should be. It totally yeah. should be. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I think the thing that's we, uh, like, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, that uh, probably every doctor should be more collaborative, but like with psychiatry, truly, I mean, you're getting information from the patient's own experience. So they're the best gauge of what is going on internally for them. Right. So you're trying to funnel that information and organize it and synthesize it in a way that you can formulate a diagnosis and then a treatment plan. So with that in mind, um, like questions, um, I, I, I'll pivot from that a little bit. What I would say in order, in order to prepare yourselves for like that initial visit is one. I think just kind of formalize and write what I love when my patients do is write down your symptoms. Like, cause a lot mm-hmm. of times like having that clear cut, like you get into the appointment and you kind of, you get lost in questions and it's hard for you to kind of pin down what's important to you because what's important to the doctor might be completely different because they're trying to figure out what your symptoms are, but what you're experiencing is very different. Right. Um. So they might be bar- like heading down the wrong path. There and you're like, oh, that's really not that big of a deal. I really want to, you know, this is what okay. I need to focus on. So writing down your symptoms. A- and then the other thing is having a clear cut set of like goals. Like this is know. how, like, you know, cause a lot of times like I'll be meeting with people and I'm like, well, ha- how would you want this to get better? And they're like, I don't know. I just wanted to get better. And I'm like, that doesn't help me. Like give me ways, give me tangible ways that this could improve. Could is it that your sleep could get better? Is it that you could, your appetite would be less? Is it like, what is it, what, what tangibly could improve? Because those are going to be our mileposts to see and assess if we're making progress. So those are the two big things that That's I important. would write and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of gauging, um, because you want to, you want to build that relationship. So I guess you're not like really. I wouldn't say that you really need to be responsible for asking questions, because the doctor is primarily going to be asking those questions. You need to provide answers and have a clear idea of where you want to go. Good. Then I did it
1: right. <laughs> yes, I had a, I oh, I had a note um, in my notes app on my phone. I started mm-hmm. writing down. As soon as my daughter got her diagnosis and I was suspicious of my own struggles sure in is. that area, yeah. I started jotting down my symptoms, even if I wasn't sure that they were ADHD related or not. And they were, they were symptoms that, that I thought weren't typical and they yeah. could have been anywhere on the spectrum. I even wrote on there, like how furious I get when people are walking too slow and I have to walk behind them like, and I'm not even in a hurry. So annoying. Like, there's no rush and yeah. i still am like infuriated and even just last night um i follow a couple of people on social media who are experts in autism cuz my son was diagnosed um w- back then as well and the toe walking i thought that toe walkers anyway i toe walk but only in bare feet huh. and specifically especially if it's on cement always like the feeling of cement on my entire foot is like <laughs> uh-huh. so just odd things like that. Yeah. And um, and actually my psychologist asked me that same question. She's like, what are your goals? Like out of all those symptoms, just so we can have like some expectation management, what do you want to change? And for me, one of them was nightmares from my complex yeah. PTSD. I want them to stop. And um that's what hasn't stopped. And that's why she wants to send me to TMS. So I'm like, well, fuck.
0: well no it's good it's good that you're getting like a comprehensive management and and you know the other thing is with PTSD it's a lot of people expect uh, like from the psychiatrist side of things right a lot of people expect just throw me a pill man and make this better and it's like that's not how this works like with trauma especially there's so much work that you as the patient have to go through in order to unravel that complicated trauma and rebuild that those healthy neural pathways and that medication isn't going to get to you need to do that work in therapy so the fact that you're working with a therapist who's suggesting these alternative pathways for you is great.
1: Yeah. And some days like, I think, is this just my normal now? Like
0: just, am I going to just have nightmares for the rest of my life?
1: And and nightmare might be a little bit dramatic. Like sometimes they're nightmares and a lot of times they're just dreams with people in them that I don't want them to be in them anymore. They're from my Mm -hmm. past and who were my abusers. And it's been an interesting 15 year journey. I'm also curious about genetic screening. So... Mm -hmm. What does that entail? Like, is there like a website you have? Like, how do people even start that process? And why Why would they?
0: So genetic screening is something that really came on the market maybe like 10-ish years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, it's had a complicated history um, because it has, you know, Come onto the market, and then people were really into it, and then it fell out of favor for a while because people were like, It's not data driven, and then they got more data. So it's been this very, um, it's been a roller coaster, um, okay. following this kind of journey. Sounds like it's been a roller coaster, like more so in academia, and okay. well, I think yeah. in academia, and also it, like bleed over in terms of like clinical relevance right because even starting in academia if you're like okay well I don't know how valid this test is you're obviously not going to use it for your patients what I will tell you is that on on face value the genetic tests we have available now and our office uses a couple of different kinds of genetic testing I actually like I like and you know and that's actually kind of a polarizing topic between our partners some of our partners are like oh, I don't use this data and some of us do Um, and I think the reason for that is because I think that the genetic test is not what everyone thinks it is. Everyone expects a genetic test to give you like, this is my dream medication. It's not, it's not going to tell you that what it's Mm going to tell you is these are the things that you're not going to be able to metabolize. So these are bad. And then the rest you could kind of pick and choose from. So there's a chance that your genetic data will come back and it'll be like, you're totally fine. Like okay. you, genetically, you can metabolize all this stuff. So it doesn't give you a whole lot of clinical data. So people are like, I don't know if you really want to go through the song and dance of like trying to, because oh, insurance almost never covers it. Right. And and depending on the that. company you use, it it may or may not be expensive, or sometimes they have a sliding scale, but sometimes people are like, I don't even know why we'd be kind of like, it's not giving us that much good clinical mm-hmm. data. What I will tell you is that for people that are super freaked out about starting medications, they've never started a medication. So I feel like there's some clinical value in like, okay, if you're freaked out, let's do this first and figure out which ones are absolute no's. So then we could take that off your plate and be like, okay, well, if you try one of these, at least it's not going to be awful. Like, okay, let's go from there. Um, Or versus someone who's been on tons of different medication and you know, there's one or two left. And then it's like, okay, well, do we do we see, like, is there a reason for this? Like, does the genetic data tell us that, like, you just are blacked out? Like, you don't have the genetic capacity to metabolize this class of medications, and we need to do something else? Mm-hmm. And some people just find it, like, validating. Like, right. I knew Effexor didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I knew it. Like, you know, things like that. Okay,
1: interesting. I, I thought it was something else, but I'm going to ask you about that. I wonder if that has to do with in my questionnaire, when I was going through all of my testing, I was asked about caffeine. Like, do you metabolize caffeine easily? And I absolutely do not. Like I am Mm -hmm. the person who cannot drink caffeine after 11 AM. I always say like, or I'm dancing with the devil. Like, But my husband, on the other hand, can have like coffee after dinner and be asleep in a half an hour. And I'm like, what is that like? Because I love coffee. But it just, the experience of it. it, So that's why she doesn't want to put me on a stimulant. And I have a history of substance abuse addiction. (laughs) So I also don't want to put on a stimulant. Also, I have found that, and I bet if I had genetic testing, it would have told me something about this, or maybe it wouldn't. I have found a couple of medications, mostly for anxiety and depression. Um, Celexa was one of them. and, And Zoloft did the same thing where I felt better depression wise, but I was like completely emotionally muted. And as a writer, I noticed that I was like writing things and it was just like the facts. There was no emotion in it. And it was like, it was as if I couldn't in real life be demonstrative with my emotions. I didn't cry. I think at all the whole time I was on Zoloft. And there were moments that happened where I'm like, I should be crying right now. Like in my Mm. real life, I would be crying and I wasn't, it was like, I couldn't access them to write mm-hmm. and normally i just writing is the way that i do that it's the pathway yeah. if i can't figure things out i will start typing is that a sign that maybe it's not a good fit or is that just sometimes what happens with medication that that is actually good for people
0: um it depends. So that that's that's so SSRIs in particular they are notorious Is that the for
1: name for that? When Oh, SSRIs you said.
0: Okay. SSRIs so things like Zoloft, Lexapro, Celexa, they have something called SSRI apathy syndrome where you just feel blah.
1: I felt like I lost my Andrianess. That's how I described it to my doctor.
0: Yeah. A lot of people uh, say that, you know, they feel emotionally blunted or things like that. So sometimes you can have that. Now, what I will tell you is, does that mean that that's a bad fit for you genetically? I don't know. Okay. Sometimes that is. And sometimes it's a dose dependent thing. Sometimes it's a gut related thing. Sometimes it's a symptom related thing. So sometimes it might be the right medication for you, but because of other stuff that's going on, you know, it, it's almost like it's a protective mechanism for that. So there's, it's so, it's a lot of variables. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I thought genetic testing too also encompassed, like if you have on your DNA strand, um, like, so for instance, my dad struggled his entire life with anxiety and depression pretty bad, like to the point where he had to be hospitalized a couple of times and it was awful. And I always felt, and I remember talking to my siblings about this. I always felt like he never got his meds quite right. And so I thought the genetic testing would tell you that like, yes, this is in your DNA that, you know, the depression lives here on the allele
0: and you got it and it's bad. <laughs> no. And a lot of people, they think that's what that I they, want. God, I know me too. Like, I, I would love that. But I think what, what's, and that's what a lot of people think is in genetic testing, but genetic testing has nothing to do diagnostically. It is mm. simply for the medications. So okay. it's not going to tell you that are you are different. Are they trying depressed.
1: to find that? Like, is there research happening where they're trying to find that?
0: So the problem is, is believe me, man, this is something that everybody wants a piece of, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, if we could crack this, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have a job, but it's fine. <laughs> well, you're, that you're, I think it just might change. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, my job would change.
1: Well, I think, I think too, people want to know for... Well, then we get into like trying to make these like designer children and things like that. But, uh, you know, things like perfectionism, like I've heard that there are theories that the perfectionism hangs out around the same area that anxiety does, like in our genes and things like that
0: the fundamental issue with gene testing in order to find diagnoses is that diagnoses one are so multifaceted and two, we're looking at such complicated genetic data, which can like uh, complicated genetic data in terms of like depression could really fire on like tons of different things and it, depending on how it's expressed. And so it's not just like, Oh, it's like a 15, x chromosome that's where it is it's like no way this is like so complicated it could present in tons of different places it could be uh, you get a little bit of it from your gut you get a little bit of it from your um like how you're breathing and your jaw placement and like there're tons of different variables that makes depression kind of difficult to not only manage, but diagnose because, you know, it's hard. And the ACE score, you know, like childhood trauma probably
1: plays a huge role in that as well. You're trying
0: to diagnose a constantly moving target and that's why it's difficult. Now, what, what I will tell you is that it, it would be interesting Like our only hope at finding something like that out is to do longitudinal and like generational studies of people. That's really where we're going to get like hereditary data. But as of right now, I I don't know anyone who's successfully done that. You could do that.
1: Yeah. That sounds like it would be a century long. I would volunteer. My dad passed away, unfortunately, but I could tell you a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I I could talk to you forever, (sighs) but I want to ask about you, wrote a book that's coming out soon yeah. and it's called self care for people with ADHD. Yeah. yeah. And where do you want people to go? Do you want
0: them to follow you, follow you on social media where you could follow me? is going on to Instagram or TikTok to the psych doctor MD. Um, and, or you can like type in my name Sasha Hamdani MD and it comes up. Um, that's a good resource for information about ADHD. And yeah, this book is coming out. Simon and Schuster is putting it out, I think in October of 22. Um, and that oh. is, I'm actually really proud of that. I think that's, a, I think that's a good resource. And I, when I was writing it, I wrote it in the viewpoint of like, this is what I wish someone had given me in medical school when I was like really fluttering, which actually reminds me circling back to something we started like right in the beginning. And I don't even know if it's appropriate yeah. to circle back to that. So, you know, you asked me a question and then I got distracted and I went off on another tangent. You asked me. Well, I think I asked you two questions at the same time, which <laughs> is terrible for someone with ADHD. I should know that. I should oh know God, better. You shouldn't put us together. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so one, uh, the thing you asked me or like you brought up is like, I, I, I don't think I've ever met someone who, whose parents kept their diagnosis from them. I mean, as a parent, and you're a parent. I think one of the most interesting things about this diagnosis in particular is like, and as I've kind of grown and like seen it both as a patient and as a student and as a as a clinician, is looking at that stigma and how um, mm-hmm. how different it is for women, um, and how you know you can carry that with you. And like uh, for uh, for a long time, I was really angry with my parents, and I felt very betrayed. and And then you know you become a parent, and you're like no, this is like something that they thought was best to protect me during that time. Yes. And I've really understood as I've started growing with it and exploring it. So I think what I like about how I wrote this book is that it is written in the view. Literally, I wrote it like this is what I want in med school because it is what I am proudest of is that it's a way of explaining things in a shame free and guilt and stigma free way. Like this is, these are the facts. This is what made when I was writing it, I'm like, I feel better about this. This is a way of me absolving myself of that stigma. So that's, awesome. that's what I like about it.
1: I find it just fascinating. And I I can see, I mean, this is no shame to your parents. I totally understand why they did it. Like I really struggled with, when do I tell my son about his diagnosis? Cause he was only five and I know there's some kids that I've heard, especially in the, the autism community where they don't tell their yeah. children and that's, that's a personal choice. And I don't think that that's not for me to decide whether you decide to tell your children that or not, but I can see now, especially with this younger, gen- did
0: you grow up? I'm nineties. <laughs> Thank you so Did much. You no. I mean, I was oh. <laughs> born in the 80s, but yeah, like formative okay. youth was in the 90s. Yeah. So still,
1: it's still very much like a little boy's thing. But I have found, especially on TikTok, that this younger generation, I guess it would be like the younger Gen Z and Gen Alpha growing up in a completely almost like opposite world of how we grew Ooh, yeah. up talking about trauma and mental health diagnosis and. And now I think the pendulum has swung maybe a little bit too far (laughs) and people are dissecting everything and like being hyper, hyper aware and, and hyper observing. And yeah, it's interesting, but Hey, I don't know. I I
0: think there were probably some benefits to you not knowing. So too. And the more I've kind of gone about things and learned and like, you know, I think when I started this, uh, pathway down psychiatry, I had some proper discussions with my parents. And I was like, what is this? And like, what, like, how am I supposed to move forward from how much of this was like me being drugged into performing and how much of this is my actual capability? Because I literally have no idea. The way that they described it to me was really important. They were saying, you know, we gave you, you know, we, we didn't want to, you know, we tried the best we could and we wanted to Mm -hmm. give you the best chance of moving forward. But at that time, we didn't know how to explain this to you because you were such a sensitive little kid. And, and to me, that, um, that really resonated with me. And that's, that's one of the most important reasons to have that good working relationship with your psychiatrist and your therapist, because they're the people that are going to help you and bridge that gap. As a parent, you don't have to have, you don't have to know how to have that conversation. That's not your job. You didn't go to school for that. right? Like if you feel like that's something that you need help with and you want to explain to your kid and you, you have this vision of how it's going to be, and you want to handle it delicately work with your provider.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. And it's Dr. It's Dr. MD.com, correct. Yes. Okay. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And the the book self care for people with ADHD. Thank you so much again yeah. for your time and everyone listening. Thank you for your time. You know how much I value that, and I'm so grateful that you come to choo- you choose to spend some time with me and my guests. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans, and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hi there. Swinging back by to say one more thing. You know how I'm always giving advice over here on the show and on social media, and a couple of those things is that I'm always telling you to ask for what you want, be clear about it, and also ask for help. So I am taking a dose of my own medicine, and I'm going to do that right now. It would be the absolute best and mean the world to me if you reviewed and subscribed to this show, Make Some Noise podcast, on whatever podcast platform of your choice. And even more importantly, it would matter so much if you shared this show. Sharing the show is one of the few ways the podcast can grow, and that also gives more women an opportunity to make some noise in their lives. You can do that by taking a screenshot when you're listening on your phone and sharing it in your Instagram or Facebook stories. If you're on Instagram, you can tag me at hey Andrea Owen, and I try my best to always re-share those and give you a quick thank you DM. And also you can tell your friends and family about it. Tell them what you learned, tell them a really awesome guest that you found on the show that you started following. Whatever it is, I appreciate so much you sharing about this show.